There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is nationally recognized television personality and host of the Trinity Broadcasting Network's Sessions with Cynthia Garrett, which airs five times a week, the one and only Cynthia Garrett. Cynthia Garrett is, of course, known by many for her 20-plus years in the television and entertainment industry. Her ability to celebrate the human spirit and relate to others regardless of their personal story or circumstance has made her an industry mainstay and a standout among her peers. Her candid sharing of her personal story of overcoming hardship, her ultimate journey to finding faith and helping others on their own journeys to finding that same depth of faith is perhaps her biggest gift to others. Cynthia Garrett, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here with you. Thank you. In 2000, Cynthia broke barriers when she became the first Black woman to host a network late-night show, NBC's Later with Cynthia Garrett. She currently hosts and produces The Sessions with Cynthia Garrett, which airs weekly around the world on TBN, the top faith and family network. The show is centered around honest talk about real women's issues and bringing godly wisdom to talk topics such as identity, parenting, dating, marriage, and forgiveness. Cynthia Garrett regularly provides commentary on culture, education, and social issues on Fox News, The Ingram Angle, and with our good friend Martha McCallum on The Story with Martha McCallum. Cynthia is the author of two books, Prodigal Daughter, A Journey Home to Identity, an autobiography about overcoming childhood sexual abuse, rape, and addiction, and I Choose Victory, Moving from Victim to Victor. An ordained minister, she's the founder of Cynthia Garrett Ministries and the Bernard Garrett Senior Foundation. And she's a true role model for all individuals, particularly women and girls, when it comes to empowerment, identity, and living in faith. That may be the longest intro I've ever given, Cynthia. Holy cow. We're going to have a great <laughs> show, folks. We've heard a lot of talk about the pandemic and how it has affected our mental health. And there's no doubt that it has. I've been talking for months. Our listeners have heard about the mental health tsunami that we're going to have you know, on the other side of COVID-19 whenever that comes. But there were many issues on that front even before the pandemic. And I'm thinking now about young people and millennials. Why are so many young people depressed or anxious today? Gosh, I mean, wow, Chris, that's a really great question. And in all honesty, you know, I work so much with young people through my organization and I, I have a lot of kids, a lot of adopted kids and I adore young people. I think what I have seen is they're so depressed and anxious today because they're under the greatest form of attack that I think can exist on the human spirit, the human mind, the human psyche, and it's called an identity attack. They truly are in an identity crisis, and we live in a society that is feeding their identity crisis. You know? Yeah. So breaking into the entertainment industry in general obviously is very challenging, even more so breaking into network television. Was it harder for you as the first African-American woman to host a network late night show, or was the time just right, or was it a combination of both factors? Gosh, I think it was a combination of both factors, in all honesty, Chris. You know, I, I, I feel like I found the thing I was born to do, 
you know, in terms of uh, hosting a talk show. I'm curious about people. I love interviewing people. Um, it's something I enjoy. I'm transparent about my own journey and my own struggles and my own victories and, and failures. And so uh, it just kind of fit naturally for me. Um, so there was that. And then I think there was also a bit of a timing thing. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the, I guess, late 99, the NAACP was all over the networks to, uh, for its lack of diversity in hiring in front of the camera, which is, I, I don't, I can't say that that exists today at all, but back then, you know, that was the, that was the thing. Right. And so I think, you know, I, the network president at the time, uh, cause I remember going into interview for him. He said, listen, cause he was an Asian man. And he said, I'm not going to do any favors. We want to find a permanent host for this show. I'm going to give you a couple of guest hosting shots. Now, this show was an NBC show that came on after Leno and Conan at like one o'clock in the morning. So, and it was a built-in show. It was, it, the show had been created for Bob Costas and then it was given to Greg Kinnear. And then it, it sort of languished for about two years with just using guest hosts. And it was a network time block. So they weren't going to cancel it, but nobody was really doing well. No one was really popping out. I did two guest shots and broke 10 ratings, which back then was, you know, well, it'd be phenomenal today to, to, to break a five, to be honest with you. Back then I broke a 10 and it was like, oh my gosh. So I do feel like there was this push that came from circumstances, but I also had the skill set and I was ready, you know, and, and it's better to have no opportunities and be prepared than to have a million opportunities and not be prepared. And so that's something my parents taught me, you know, you can focus on not having any opportunities or you can focus on being prepared and then trust that God's going to bring you an opportunity. And he did. And when he did, I was ready. You know, I do this podcast once a week and so put my prep work into it. And that is stressful enough just for one, one hour show. I can't imagine what it's like doing it every day, five days a week. How do you prep for that? What, what's it do to you physically, mentally, the pros, the cons? Well, it's intense. You know, it's intense because I'd like to know who I'm sitting down with. And I think it's respect also, right? Like if I'm going to sit across from a person, I would, I, I want to research, you know, what they've done. I want to take a look at their book and, and, you know, I want to do the best job to honor who they are and the time that they're giving me. And, you know, I had a great team around me to help with, you know, hey, here's a mountain of research. This is probably the stuff that really condenses it and makes it, you know, the most clear to understand. They would help me in, in, in terms of um, access to information. But at the end of the day, I just think it's a curiosity about people you have to have. And sadly, I, I hate to say it, but sadly, a lot of what I see hosting talk shows today, and you probably will feel the same way. I don't know that I see a lot of gracious hosts who are really curious about people, right? Like it's all about them. They're there to be a star and have the camera on them. But when I'm, when I'm doing what you're doing, right? And I'm on your side, I make my, I try to make myself small because it's not about me. It's about the guest, And I want the guests to shine and I want to make the guests bigger. And I don't know that a lot of people approach it that way. Yeah. I agree. And totally appreciate that. You know, when I first started the podcast, it was always, you know, I'd wake up every Tuesday morning. I told you over the weekend, you know, I'm nerve wracking and do I have enough questions that I do my research and then you get into the rhythm and the groove. And so it is an art and a science. Uh, so I appreciate what you're doing with that. And 
going from a late night TV show host to an ordained minister is a heck of a journey. And I'm excited to hear that story as we, as we go through the show today. Mm, So, you know, and then this past year, we've seen so much upheaval, you know, starting with COVID-19, obviously the election, uh, the Capitol Hill riots last month. How is this change going to affect opportunities for young women and people of color? Ah, wow. I mean, I think in the short run, you know, uh, people of color and women, you know, I guess these sort of groups that feel uh, marginalized, right? Um, I think in the short run, what happens is they look at things offered to them and, and, and we, and this is what happens if you're not looking at, at the Lord. Okay. So you look at what's being offered to you. Hey, I'm going to help you. Hey, I'm going to give to you. Hey, this, these rights are for you. And you think that your savior has ridden into town, but in it, all that does is really stop you from looking below the surface because I, I, I don't really think that anything's going to help anything much. I think that, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter is a movement that's not born of teaching people about real identity and faith. Real identity is found at the foot of the cross. I mean, my, my faith is in Christ. I'm a, fairly, I'm, a, I'm a very vocal believer and Christian, and I just believe that my own identity struggles were all answered by understanding how God created me and what he created with me and in me as a woman. And so therefore, the more I understood about who I am in Christ, and the more I see other young people come to understand themselves in Christ, especially, you know, black or, or female, um, the more I see real confidence, because real confidence brings real self-respect. And self-respect doesn't then look outside at someone else for help or for answers. It continues to look inside and look up. You know, uh, I don't need anybody. I've I've said this a million times. I never needed anybody to tell me that my black life mattered. I always knew that it did. You know, my parents told me it did. And then they introduced me to my faith and my faith definitely tells me that it does. And so a lot of these movements, I'm afraid that they're just going to actually end worse than before the person was when they began in terms of, you know, you're being black or in terms of being female, because a lot of these movements today, for example, if we focus on women, right? A lot of these movements are about abortion being empowering and about, you know, the woman having the right to choose and the right to do what she wants. But none of these, none of these movements are telling a woman, hey, actually, you also have the right to be celibate until a man honors you, respects you, and marries you. Hey, actually, your value isn't in, you know, what you bring to a relationship physically. It's in what you bring mentally and in your heart. And so if we taught young girls what their real value and worth was as daughters of a king, right? they would like themselves enough. And I do believe they would set the bar higher because right now I think all we're doing is teaching them to set the bar low. It's not empowering a young girl for her to think that her right to get an abortion is just, you know, that's her empowerment. What does that mean? You know, what does that mean? What does that take from her? No one's telling her what that takes from her life and her soul and her mind. That's not empowering at all. That's lazy. That's lazy and it's control. You know, over the last several months, as COVID-19 continues to weigh on us, I've been getting into mental health advocacy mm-hmm. and 
know, I've really been drinking from a fire hose. And the more I read and the more I do some digging, the more and more I'm finding stories on how um, African-Americans are suffering more mental health challenges than other groups. Yeah. Uh, last week, the CDC put out a report where over the course of the last year during COVID-19, uh, the average lifespan for Caucasians dropped one year, and for African-Americans, it dropped 2.7 years. Mm. You know, why, why do you feel mental health is so, so much more challenging for the African-American population? Because I, I believe that the African-American population keeps being given a, a lie, you know, from one side politically that, you know, hey, put your attention here. We're going to fix everything for you. And, and then the other side is just the pain of circumstances or lack of opportunity or education, you know, education inequality is in, incredible. Yet we continue to vote for the same democratic run school unions and leaders who are just recycling the same old problems. Like at what point do you say this is not working? I don't care what political party you are. You're not working for me. And then you change. And then the other thing is I, I, you know, the African-American community, I, I mean, we used to be really rooted in the church, you know, and I find that as there's been an attack on faith in our community, there's also been an attack on fathers in the home. There's been an attack on the family. And without a family unit, I mean, a, the godly created family unit is the foundation of not America. It's the foundation of mankind. No matter what you do, it takes a man and a woman to make a baby. Now, when, when things are operating, and look, I, I, I am the product of divorce. I myself had a very bad first marriage and ended up divorced and a single mom until I met my second husband and God brought all kinds of restoration to my life. However, I'm honest enough to know that my son really blossomed when I married a great godly man who then brought a great godly fathering into my home because we are we're meant to be parented by a man or woman. Two people in the house are better. You can't, you can't say in a perfect world that the perfect way is not better. It is. Now, I know we've got all these other imperfect things, but if we start to deal in reality about, hey, this is an imperfect thing. Now, how do we make this imperfect thing better? And how do we make it work? Okay, that's fine. But to deal in this complete lack of reality that we're dealing in, which is this imperfect thing is equal to this thing. In fact, this imperfect thing is what God created. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. If that were the case, then, you know, I can make babies with, uh, you know, I mean, my chihuahua. I Like, come on. I mean, it just, things work a certain way. And I, I just think we're believing a lot of lies. And I would like to see my people you know, pull together a lot more and look at how we can internally be our own solutions, fix our own problems, you know, deal with the fact that, uh, you know, I hate racism for sure. And, and, but there are racist cops and doctors and bankers and lawyers. It exists in the world. However, there's also black on black crime. And those statistics are a lot higher than white cops killing you know, young blacks. And we just have to start to be real about this and not, I feel like what's happening is we're exaggerating one problem 
to the exclusion of the real disease. You know, we're looking at one consequence and we're actually, the focus is being put there by the media and everyone to keep the real focus of black people off of ourselves. You know, my life changed when I said, you know what? A lot of unfair stuff has happened to me. A lot of stuff that would qualify me to be a victim the rest of my life. But you know something? I let it all go. I forgive. I give it to you, God. I'm now going to deal with me. Because at the end of the day, I got, I got me when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> so You've shared the idea that it's not enough for us to talk the talk, that the way to really demonstrate faith is to walk the walk. In fact, you've said people don't need to hear a lot of talk. They need a living encounter with God. How does one make that encounter happen? I think you got to just want it with all your heart. I really do. You know, the Bible says, knock and the door will be open, seek and you will find. I... And it also says that he's a good father. You know, I know for a fact that God will never hold his love and his presence back from a child that calls out to him. And I mean, a child can be 90 years old, 70 years old, 40 years old, 35 years old, 20 years old, doesn't matter. You are a child of God. And I really believe if you just, you know, God draw near to me, I want to know you teach me. I don't know anything about you, but who are you? Reveal yourself to me. Let me feel you. Let me experience you. That's how, even when I feel like I'm, I'm far from, I'm, I've been distant or I will sit down, father, I need to be in your presence. I need to know that I know that I know that you're real. I want an encounter with you. God's faithful. He will always show up and encounter anyone who's calling out to him with a sincere heart, you know, cause he's not stupid. He knows our hearts. (laughs) So obviously your faith has been such an important part of your life, but is a faith that has been tested. You share your story and it's a difficult one. In your first book, that chronicles childhood sexual abuse, rape, and addiction. You said that finding God's point of view saved your life in a prison cell in Italy where an abusive and deceptive first marriage turned into the grace that saved you and gave you your son, Christian. For our listeners who may not be aware of your life and how you found your faith, could you please tell us about that chapter of your life? Well, that's a multi-layered and multi-chaptered chapter for sure. Um, you know, I, I was sexually abused as a little girl and I was raped as a teenage girl. And I sort of took a lot of um, low self-esteem, uh, learned to form a lot of walls, um, arrived into my early 20s very... Um, outgoing and, and, you know, personable on the outside, super intelligent on the outside. But on the inside, I was carrying a lot of pain and a lot of scars and wounds. And so, you know, for me, um, my addictions played themselves out in a number of ways, you know, addicted to distractions, addicted to people that weren't really positive in my life, uh, addicted to, you know, bad relationships, you know, so I was looking for love to fix things in all the wrong places with the wrong guys. You know, I didn't, I wasn't surrendered to Christ. I didn't, I, 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 I was calling for him. I was looking for him, but I was looking really to fix things myself. And it really wasn't until I hit a massive wall, you know, and ran off and married the wrong guy and ended up in a horrible situation in another country that I, I got on my knees and I said, God, I can't, I, I don't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I need you. 
I, I need to understand why I have this well of pain inside. And, uh, and I knew I was filling it with a lot of darkness. And um, it all stemmed back to my childhood brokenness, you know, uh, being sexually abused as a kid, you know, and, and then when my parents got a divorce and I was a young teenage girl, that really impacted me because I was a daddy's girl and I loved my father. And, you know, all of these things just add, added up. And what I realized at a certain point was that I, like many people, are broken because broken people break other people. You know, even perfect parents raise imperfect children. And it, you know, why? Because there really are no perfect parents. They may look perfect, but there's no perfect experience because we live in a fallen world. You know, there's brokenness in this world. And I think so many people carry so much pain and disappointment and feeling overlooked and feeling like victims, you know, they carry it with them. And until you stop and confront it all with Christ, you know, it was Isaiah 61 when uh, Jesus's ministry is announced and he says, I came to bind up the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. That really impacted my life because when I met that scripture and I met inner healing based around that scripture, that's when I knew God is real and he wants us to have a positive, whole, healthy life while we're here also. This just isn't about eternity only. It's about here and now and abundance for now. And um, you got to take the first step. It begins with you. <laughs> You've been such an inspiration to so many young women, especially those who found themselves in very difficult circumstances and dire straits. What do you say to young women and others who fall into victimization or otherwise oppressed by society? Hmm. So stuff happens, right? Stuff happens. There's, I mean, I was, I, I was a child. I didn't ask to be sexually molested. You know, I, I didn't ask as a 15 year old girl to be raped. You know, I, stuff happens. I didn't ask to have cancer. I'm a cancer survivor. Um, I didn't ask to be a single mom, but you know, the horribly abusive first marriage, <laughs> you know, ending up, really in the experience through which I got saved while I was pregnant, right? So that, that was the beautiful silver lining to all of it. But I didn't ask for those things that caused me to go through life with so much pain and anger and disappointment and fears and all this stuff. So what, what I've learned is that most people don't choose to be victims. They just don't know how to choose victory. And they don't understand that nobody can choose victory for your life except you. No one can give you victory. Nobody. You've got to make a choice right now, today, in whatever moment you're in to say, you know what? I got to let go of all the stuff I'm upset about. That's it. It's not doing me any good. It's like saddling yourself with a million weights. And each of those weights tells you every day, you're not worth anything. You're, you know, you're horrible. You're stupid. You're fat. You're not attractive. You can't do this because you're black. You can't do that because you're a woman. You don't have enough connection. All that, all those voices are lies from the pit of hell. And only you can choose to say, I forgive everybody and everything that's come against my life. I let it go and I give it to you, God. And right now today, I choose victory. What can I do to begin to change my circumstances? You know, I've had people say to me, they come up to me in other countries and say, 
you know, uh, it, especially throughout Africa, they call me Pastor Cynthia there because out of respect, right? My my TV programs air on the Christian network and I am an ordained minister and Pastor Cynthia, I want to be a fashion designer, but I just don't know how. And I don't, I can't go to school. My parents can't afford to send me and they'll go on and on and on. And I'm like, do you know how to sew? Yes. Do you know how to take your clothes, tear them up into scraps of fabric and make something new? Well, yes, because that's what creative people do. Right. Then you're a fashion designer. Start designing. Like, and that's a simplified version because I get it. Some of these situations are really drastic. However, man, I look at my life and the hand that my life gave me, and I can see all of the privileges, but I can also see all of the, you know, the the obstacles and the challenges. But at the end of the day, it was always my choice to choose whether to be angry and stuck in my past or in the mess of my present or to choose to get unstuck from my past, let it go, and try to navigate my way through with a positive attitude about wherever I was. And usually that positive attitude drew people to me who wanted to help. Do you think victimization is unique just to today's culture? Wow, that's a great question, Chris. Um, You know, I don't know that it's unique to today's culture, but I certainly think it's uniquely powerful today in today's culture. Um, Because I think that especially in the last four years, uh, what I've seen is because of the political um, posturing of our nation and because of the political divide in our nation, what I've seen is you know, one side, and and I hate to say it, but really on the left, um, I was a lifelong Democrat. So uh, it wasn't until I started falling in love with Christ. And then I realized I had to vote the Bible. And so that changed me. That's it. You know, I can't be a Democrat and vote the Bible. So, okay, I'm voting Jesus. I don't care what everybody else is voting and I don't care what anybody says. And so um, for me, what I see on the left though, is that you know, victimization is a wonderful thing to make people feel that they are because victim groups are easily controlled because victim groups, they complain and they moan and they look at other human beings to make their situation right. They get lost in anger. They get lost in uh, expectation and entitlement. The best way to control people is to tell them they're all victims and you're going to help them. And you know what? Nobody else will ever save you except Jesus. Is it possible that more people feel that they're victims today because there are more people in society and on the internet who take advantage of other people? Ah, you know something? No, I think people, I think it's inherent in human beings to, there's evil, there's good and evil. And, 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 and which one are you feeding? It's just like there's faith and there's non-belief, which if you're feeding your faith muscle, you're going to get better and better and stronger and stronger at living your life of faith. If you're feeding the negativity and the voices that tell you what you can't do, you're going to get very, very good at projecting failure over your own life. All you got to do is keep speaking like a victim. And I promise you, you'll inherit a victim's life. And so will your children. You know, you're just greasing them with poverty of the mind. It's, 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 it's a horrible, self-fulfilling prophecy generation after generation. So uh, I don't think that people are worse today than they were yesterday, per se. I do think that people are um, more... 
society is now in this stage of making a lot of allowances for the flesh, driving God out of the dialogue of our daily, you know, uh, consciousness. And I think there's a lot more cameras and media um, to take advantage of what the, the evil that exists. You know, you, you used to not be able to go on the internet. Well, now you can go on the internet. And then I remember when you could only go on the internet and email, you know, and now you can go on the internet and, you know, there, there are, you know, thousands of porn sites and all of these things where it's like, whoa, I mean, we're just finding new ways to showcase our wickedness. But I think the wickedness is a part of mankind. Yeah. We've been talking to Cynthia Garrett, host of the Trinity Broadcasting Network's program, Sessions with Cynthia Garrett. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 
888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with Cynthia Garrett, and we're talking about the victim mentality and victimization. With your book, I Choose Victory, Moving from Victim to Victory, you ask some very big questions. You also write about what you call the four war zones, personal, political, spiritual, and victory. Define each of those war zones and explain why each is so important. Wow. Well, in, you know, to me, it was important to, to write the book in this way because I believe that the first war zone that people deal with in their life is the personal war zone. It's your own personal set of circumstances, you know, your own personal brokenness, the, the things people did to you, your own personal mishigas, right? Your stuff. And, and then that is directly connected to the spiritual war zone. Well, the spiritual war zone is all about, you know, do you have faith? What is your faith grounded in? What, what do you believe? How do you live? You know, according to your faith, do you even live according to your faith? Well, and then you begin to see that there's this cause and effect between the personal war zone and the spiritual war zone. And you've got to confront your personal circumstances, but in confronting them, you have to confront your spiritual side and your spiritual war zone, because that is the only way that you can actually become victorious over those personal circumstances. So there are some really foundational spiritual principles involved here, like forgiveness, you know, uh, like understanding that we live in spiritual warfare and that, you know, you've got to put on the armor of God and, and concepts that may be foreign to people who are not believers, but they make all the sense in the world to people, believer and unbeliever. And then there's the political war zone. Well, the political war zone to me is the direct, you know, result of, for example, a nation of people that are lazy and refuse to confront their spiritual, their personal war zones. They therefore have no interaction at all with their spiritual war zone. And so you cannot help but become a nation politically, you know, uh, in turmoil. So the political war zone that we all experience is really and truly about the fact that, you know, you got a bunch of broken people who won't do the work on themselves personally to take, take and own their own stuff and their own ability to have to make choices and, you know, be self-reliant. And then those people won't deal with any sort of spirituality at all. Love your neighbors. You love yourself you know, basic things that would connect them to deeper things about humankind and love and what love looks like. So you cannot help but become a politically, you know, a politically embattled nation. And then the victory zone is really the zone, I think, that people who have made the choice to, to really look at all of these zones they're dealing with themselves personally. They're trying to deal with themselves spiritually. They're trying to, you know, they see the connection and they see the cause and effect and they're trying to be better citizens of their country, their community, their home, their, their, their political process. And then they, they know that they've chosen to be in the victory zone and they're having victory, they're having success. Well, but a lot of people are so comfortable with self-sabotage that they don't actually understand how to be victorious. How do I actually walk in the victory of these victorious choices and decisions I'm making? And believe it or not, that takes work because 
when you've lived as a victim with victim mentality and poverty of the mind for a long time, and maybe generations in families and in communities and nations, it's very difficult to know how to live it with victory. It's, it, you don't even know when you've arrived, you know, and when you have, you might put yourself right out of the, out of the victory zone because you just don't know how to receive it. So believe it or not, it takes work to receive the blessings of God. So how do you think about self-doubt, comparison, and the lack of confidence feeding into our broader cultural problems, which as the victim mentality, identify in finding our worth in others? Wow. Well, when you live in self-doubt, you don't really have any vision of yourself as able to achieve or do something special. You don't see the unique human being that you are. You don't see the I'm sure unique skill set that you have, you know, we're all different and we all have something to contribute. So self-doubt contributes, I think, big time to feeling and living as a victim. Um, You mentioned a couple of other things. I, I I don't see how you can see yourself any other way except as less than when you're battling with these things. You know, you've got to change those words in your life. You really do. What role do you think fear plays in our tendencies to see ourselves as victims? Wow. Well, fear is everything. I mean, fear is everything. You know, when you just really think about it, fear is also the opposite of faith. Faith and fear can't actually exist in the same spectrum, right? So someone gave me that I love the the acronym of fear, F-E-A-R, false evidence that appears real. And, and, that, and that's what fear is. It's usually false evidence that appears real. So what do I mean by that? It may feel very truthful to you that you are stuck in a certain mindset or that you are stuck in poverty or that you can't overcome a weight issue or that being a woman limits, limits your ability to you know, do the things you wanna do uh, or that being black is a, is, is a limitation. You may feel fearful of all of those things. But the reality is that, you know, I always walk into a room and it's funny, I'm often the only person of color in a room. And the only reason I know that is because sometimes when through writing this book, I'll stop and I'll look around and go, oh, okay, that's interesting. I never see myself as less than though. I never think anyone else dislikes me because of the color of my skin. Now, I just never go there. Why? Well, because I think so much of me. I think I'm a nice person. I think I'm a good person. I'm curious about other people. I try to give other people the benefit of the doubt. I always say I probably would have trusted Hitler until he did me wrong. (laughs) But I'm going to lead with trust and love. And that is something that I, I get only from my confident relationship in Christ. You know, I know that he trusts me and he loves me and I don't deserve it. So I try to give other people the benefit of the doubt. And then I try also not to put other people in pedestals or demonize them when they fail or make mistakes because human beings will always fail you. We're in flesh. I fail myself. I fail my son. I fail my husband. I fail the people that I love at at, at maybe not daily, but weekly, probably daily, you know, oh gosh, I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't very loving or kind or whatever it is. I'm very aware of the fact that I need God's grace and forgiveness daily, moment to moment. And so why shouldn't I give that to other people? You know, 
unless they're truly evil, why shouldn't everybody have a chance to show you that they're, they can be better? What is orphan thinking as it relates to our faith? And do you think it has anything to do with the culture of victimization? Yes. Great question. Oh my gosh. You know, we serve a God who prepares a banquet table for us in the presence of our enemies. Other religions serve gods for whom their followers, the followers prepare the banquet table for the God. Very interesting difference between Christianity and other religions. Now, that said, I think that, you know, that kind of relationship with God, a God that, that, serve, that loves us that much, that he prepares this banquet table for us, that kind of relationship is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a different place to think as you go through your day. Um, and then ask the question again, because you asked it in such a unique way. I want to make sure I answer it. What is orphan thinking as it relates to our faith? And do you think it has okay. anything to do with the culture of victimization? Yes. So orphans, orphans tend to feel that they have no father, they have no mother, they have no parent. So they therefore have no one who's ever going to help them or prepare a banquet table for them. They may not have anyone who's ever going to feed them or show up for them. They don't have anyone they can have faith in. That orphan mentality plagues not only people in the church, but definitely people outside of the church. And if you have an orphan mentality, you cannot help but think you're a victim because it's truly a child who's orphaned is a victim. They're a victim of, of, of not having parents to love them and guide them, right? But we're told in the Bible that we are, we're adopted into a family, that we're heirs with Christ, that we're sons and daughters. We're not orphans at all. And so for believers, when I meet believers who I can sense are struggling with victim mentality, I know that they're struggling with their alignment up and down in their relationship to God because, and they're living like orphans. You cannot know God. You can't know Jesus and struggle with orphan mentality, not constantly. And if you are, there's something going on in your relationship with the Lord that you really need to check in with. You may not know him the way that you need to know him. I know you've related this story to audiences about your father telling you that when you've been wrong, you should take 20 minutes and stamp your feet and grieve. But after 20 years, you're a fool. Relate that story to our listeners. And what did he mean by that? Wow. Um, gosh, thanks, Chris. That's, uh, that's my favorite quote that my father and my favorite lesson my dad ever gave to me. Um, he was on his deathbed. You know, uh, my father, I got to take care of him the last few years of his life. He, he passed away of lung cancer. And I would sit at his bedside and just talk to him for hours on end and days on end and ask him questions about his life and everything. And one of the things I said to him was, you know, dad, I've just gotten this big job on NBC and, you know, they're kind of making a big deal about it because I'm a woman of color and wanting me to do all these things. And, you know, how do I be a good role model? And how do I this? And how do I that? And, you know, he looked at me and he said, listen, baby girl, let me explain something to you. He said, first of all, the only way to be successful in life is to realize that people need people. Doesn't matter what color they are black, white, whatever. You need people. And I said, okay. He said, the other thing you need to understand is he said, I don't want you to be foolish. He said, because I think a lot of black people are foolish. He said, because after the first 20 seconds that someone does you a harm, 
you can cry and, and kick and get it out of your system. But after 20 years, you're a fool because you've got to take the hand that life is giving you and play it to the best of your ability. And by so doing, you, are, you will never be choosing to be a victim. He said, never, ever, ever choose to be a victim. So what he was saying to me, you know, in that moment, really liberated my thinking. It really did. Basically, you know, he was like, look, people are going to let you down, period. They're going to let you down, black people and white people. And he said, the second you think that there's a color promise on being let down, you have big, you, you're not going to see the freight train running behind your back. Because he said, remember, he said, as much racism as, as I experienced in my lifetime, uh, through the early 60s and what have you, he said, um, I also experienced the same kind of abuse from black people. He said, so abuse and, and, and people doing you harm and people talking about you or, you know, gossipers, they all come in every color. So don't be fooled, you know, don't be fooled. So, I don't know if I answered your question. But. No, you did. That was great. And I'm glad uh, we did our homework on that one. So I'm glad uh, you appreciate that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Cynthia, as our listeners and viewers heard the beginning of the show, you've done so much in your career, including Oscar ceremony, red carpet specials, hosted more sports, news, and entertainment specials than we can count, wrote the first celebrity column for InStyle Magazine. As we share the power of self-empowerment with our listeners, what do you tell them to move from dreaming about something and maybe even having a goal and a plan to actually achieving what they want to achieve? Uh, just do it. Find a way to do it, whatever it is. I mean, you young people have so much more at their fingertips today than I did in my 20s. I had to actually convince camera people to work with me for free, to get on camera doing stuff. And, and then I, I went to like one of the local uh, clubs and convinced you know one of the managers to let me take a camera into the club in the evening. I said, I wanna, I wanna go in, it's gonna be called Bathroom Talk, it's a talk show. And I'm gonna interview people as they're coming in and out of the bathroom. And I'm gonna ask them smart questions about politics. Don't even ask me, but that's what I thought of. And, and I got people to get on board. Nowadays, you would only need your, your iPhone for Pete's sake. I mean, you're able to do so many things to start your creative dreams. So whether it's, I mean, if you want to be a writer, write. You know, don't, don't wait for a book deal. People will call me and they'll say, oh, I want to write a book. I don't know anything about a publishing deal. I self-published my first book. I got online and I didn't pay someone to do it. I didn't, none of that. I got online and I figured out that through Amazon, uh, you could use CreateSpace. And with CreateSpace, you could essentially, you know, go through your own process, uh, do your own book cover, the whole thing and publish your own book. And uh, actually my very, very uh, big, big New York literary agent, uh, who's an icon in the industry by the name of Mel Berger with William Morris, um, he actually said to me, because I was offered a very low ball book deal on a parenting book, this is many, many years ago. And he said, I, these deals aren't even worth my time. He said, I can't believe it. You, you know, you could self-publish on Amazon and do better. Well, I, I didn't hear, you're not going to get this book deal because they're not going to give you any money and you're going to have to wait another four years. What I heard was, I can self-publish through Amazon? Really? Four years later when I was ready to write the book, which was my testimony, it was finally the right time. It was prodigal, the book's called Prodigal Daughter, A Journey Home to Identity. It was finally time for that book. I went straight to Amazon, figured it out, 
you know, wrote my book. I, I went away for three weeks, sat in silence, and literally, I don't even think I showered. I wrote. And it just came out of me because it was time. And every day I prayed, God, give me what you want me to say. I didn't think about the audience anymore. I didn't think about having an agent. I didn't think about having a publishing company. I did not go into all of those things we use to limit ourselves and tell ourselves, I can't do it because I don't have, and people like me can't get an agent. And uh, sniveling excuses, sit down and write the book. God will make a way. And when I self-published, all of a sudden now I have, you know, this TV ministry show on TVN. Well, I had self, I had built in ability to advertise. And then I would go speak at conferences. Well, I could bring my own book to conferences and sell it. I've sold so many of that book. It's crazy. You know, and my, my new book, I mean, I choose victory. I finally thought I want to try the traditional publishing route. And now I was fortunate enough to be offered a publishing deal. Why? Only because I did the first one on my own, right? You got to be the master of your own destiny. So I created it for myself with God's help. And so I have to tell you, the traditional publishing model, it, it's been different and it's been wonderful to have uh, a team and what have you, but I, I would never trade, you know, the, the freedom of just saying, I'm not going to worry about all of these things that I think are going to, that I need to line up to be successful. I'm just going to tell my story and I'm going to let God find the person who's going to be impacted by my story, who needs help from somebody like me. So you've interviewed Mick Jagger, Prince, Madonna, Elton John, Michael Jordan, Denzel Washington, Meryl Streep. The list goes on and on. Yeah. But one thing I didn't realize that you and Lenny Kravitz have such a spiritual connection that you consider each other sister and brother. Yeah. How do we achieve a spiritual connection like that? Is it something we can consciously do or is it something that really is just in the hands of a higher power? Oh, no. God just gave, God just blessed us with something special. It's funny. I was on the phone with him last night. Uh, we were celebrating my birthday and a friend's birthday. And he's in the, he's in the DR in the Dominican Republic, working on a movie with uh, Jennifer Lopez and a bunch of comedians, right? First time off the Island, off of his COVID quarantine on his Island in the Bahamas in a year, literally. And he's talking to me about the COVID kind of protocols they're doing and what have you. But you know, we were talking when I hung up the phone, one of the guys who was with us in this group of about seven, we we're hanging out actually at Kathy Lee Gifford's house, singing, singing old songs, playing the guitar and the piano and just hanging out and fellowshipping and talking about the Lord and having a good time. And one of my friends, Paul, looked at me and he said, you guys have something that I have never seen before. And he said, it's like, you're really friends, but you're really brother and sister. And, and I said, yeah. And we started calling each other brother and sister when we were kids as, a, as kind of a protection around the special relationship that we have, because most people could never conceive of a guy and a girl being able to be as just as tight as we've always been. And I love him and I believe in him so much. And I, I always have. I've always believed in his talent. But more than that, I've always believed in the man of God that God has told me that he is. He's a general in the army of the Lord. And I, I have always stood on the wall and always will in faith for him. He's a beautiful human being. So Cynthia, we have just a few minutes left. 
What are some other things our listeners can do this year, the year of the never ending year of COVID-19 to feel more empowered, more control of their lives and to bed and feel better about themselves? Um, Tell fear to go fly a kite. Stop being ruled by fear. Um, You know, that's why they call it terrorism. Start to look at this as sure. You want to be careful, but also you've got to answer the question for yourself as to when this has become an assault on your spirit akin to terrorism. You know, um, I don't wear a mask everywhere. I will wear a mask if I go inside of a place and I know other people are concerned or conscious about it. But when I'm out during the day and I'm in my own car or I'm outside walking, I'm not wearing a mask. Follow the science for Pete's sake. You know what I mean? You're outside, you're, you're by yourself and no one's within 10 feet of you. You probably don't have to wear a mask. It's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to give myself moments of liberation. You know, we were talking about it last night. You know, Ka- Kathy Lee was saying, she goes, I don't wear a mask. And I said, gosh, you know, Kath, that's right. In like eight months, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've seen you in a mask. She said, no, I know it's true. Don't tell anybody. But she goes, in Franklin, I, I mean, we live outside of Nashville and here in Tennessee in the country, it's just sort of a different trip. You know what I mean? And no, it's not crazy hick hillbillies who think Jesus is going to keep us all whole and healthy. We do think Jesus is going to keep us all whole and healthy, but it's more of a, just an unwillingness to be controlled by fear. You know, um, I meet a lot of people in other places who actually get what's going on. Cynthia Garrett, thanks so much for beating us today. Thank you, Chris. You're awesome. Thank you. No, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.